Welcome to this Halloween episode of The Podvocate. Your hosts today are me, Matt Dorn, and Radhika Sutherland. On this Halloween special, we're calling the dungeons and dredging the cauldrons of the legal world to bring you some spooky legal stories. We've got ghosts, we've got haunted courthouses, we've even got NASCAR-themed tombstones. Everything you want in a Halloween-themed law school podcast episode, we've got it. Sit back and enjoy this eerie journey of The Podvocate. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. So the first thing we wanted to talk about was a pretty well-known opinion um, called Stambovsky v. Ackley. This is a case from the appellate level in New York in 1991. We were first introduced to it in property law last semester. Shout out to Professor Paradise for showing this to us. I think around Halloween time, it was just the most delightful breath of fresh air. I did not know that judges could have such a wonderful sense of humor. I have a feeling that he took the opportunity to really run wild with it, and he definitely did. He definitely <laughs> did. So, it, it, like I said, it's a very nerdy law, school, law student thing to say, but the Stambovsky opinion is my favorite opinion ever of all time. So Stambovsky was a man who unwittingly purchased a house actively advertised as haunted by the owner. The house was written about in Reader's Digest magazine, and it was a stop on the local haunted tour in this town of Nyack, New York, which I had never heard of, but you're a New Yorker. Do you know Nyack? It's, it's about, it's right over the Tappan Zee Bridge for you New Yorkers. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's really not far. It's kind of hard to get to Manhattan from there because you'd have to take a bus across the Tappan Zee and then a train down. So it's about two hour commute to get into lower Manhattan, but it's... It's kind of worth it. It's a really pretty town. Yeah, and I Googled this house, obviously, when we read the case in uh, in property last year, and it is a stunningly beautiful home right. on the water. And if you're in the market, it is currently for sale at a cool $1.9 million for five-bed, five-bath. Wait till you hear this case before you make a decision, though. Yes. So Stimbovsky sued to back out of buying this house once he discovered that it was haunted, but the trial court dismissed the complaint, stating that no remedy at law was available. So naturally, Stambovsky appealed and took it to the next level, and that's where you get this opinion. So you really need to hear what the outcome of the appeal was through the judge's own words, because it is truly <laughs> chef's kiss masterful. <clears throat> Whether the source of the spectral apparitions seen by the defendant's seller are parapsychic or psychogenic, Having reported their presence in both a national publication and the local press, defendant is stopped to deny their existence and, as a matter of law, the house is haunted. More to the point, however, no divination is required to conclude that it is the defendant's promotional efforts in publicizing her close encounters with these spirits which fostered the home's reputation in the community. While I agree with the Supreme Court that the real estate broker, as agent for the seller, is under no duty to disclose to a potential buyer the phantasmal reputation of the premises, premises and that in his pursuit of a legal remedy for fraudulent misrepresent, misrepresentation against the seller, plaintiff hasn't a ghost of a chance. I am nevertheless moved by the spirit of equity to allow the buyer to seek rescission of the contract of sale and recovery of his down payment. 
New York law fails to recognize any remedy for damages incurred as a result of the seller's mere silence, applying instead the strict rule of caveat emptor, or buyer beware. Therefore, the theoretical basis for granting relief, even under the extraordinary facts of this case, is elusive, if not ephemeral. From the perspective of a person in the position of the plaintiff herein, a very practical problem arises with respect to, d- to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who you gonna call? <laughs> As the title of the song to the movie Ghostbusters asks. Applying the strict rule of caveat emptor to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeists conjures up visions of a psychic or medium routinely accompanying the structural engineer and t- Terminix man on an inspection of every home subject to a contract of sale. It portends that the prudent attorney will establish an escrow account lest the subject of the transaction come back to haunt him and his client. Or pray that his malpractice insurance coverage extends to supernatural disasters. In the interest of avoiding such untenable consequences, the notion that a haunting is a condition which can and should be ascertained upon reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin which should be exorcised from the body of legal precedent and laid quietly to rest. (laughs) The doctrine of caveat emptor requires that a buyer act prudently to assess the fitness and value of his purchase and operates to bar the purchaser who fails to exercise due care from seeking the equitable remedy of rescission. It should be apparent, however, that the most meticulous inspection and the search would not reveal the presence of poltergeists at the premises or unearth the property's ghoulish reputation in the community. Therefore, there is no sound policy reason to deny plaintiff relief for failing to discover a state of affairs which the most prudent purchaser would not be expected to even contemplate. Application of the remedy of rescission within the bounds of narrow exception to the doctrine of caveat emptor set forth herein is entirely appropriate to relieve the unwitting purchaser from the consequences of a most unnatural bargain. I mean, (laughs) I have to give it a round of applause. I, I appreciate a good pun. I'm married to a man who is not yet a father but has mastered the dad joke. (laughs) And uh, I just think that this is brilliant, either by the clerk or the judge, whoever did it. It was brilliant. This is is something that would put a twinkle in Scalia's eye. This is just brilliantly done. (laughs) I um, hope that I get a chance to work for a judge one day who has this good of a sense of humor, honestly. Yes, absolutely. So uh, some quick facts about this house currently. Again, it's currently for sale at One Lavetta Place, Nyack, New York. For 1.9 million, five bed, five bath. A three famous people have lived here at this point. Uh, film director Adam Brooks, who you know from Bridget Jones, what was it on Bridget Jones' uh, diary? The Edge of Reason. Oh, yeah. So one of the more recent ones. He he wrote that one. So. Oh, good. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> truly <laughs> deserves to be acknowledged. For um, that. Ingrid Michaelson, a singer-songwriter. Yeah. And the singer-rapper Matis Yahoo Matis is, cur- is the current owner and seller of the property as we speak. That alone makes it worth $1.9 million. It is. It, it's gorgeous. So I, mean, I, I see that Zillow is no longer advertising it as haunted. So no, it, it is not. It seems like they learned their lesson. It is not. So if so, I guess someone can come back on us and say that we damaged the seller's ability to sell the house. If they want to throw our names in an opinion, I'm here <laughs> for it. Yeah. Um, but if you're interested in a haunted house, here's one for sale. You only need $2 million. 
We're going to transition now into haunted legal buildings. And the mm. first is a haunted courthouse. A Louisiana woman, Tony Joe Henry, was the first and only woman to be sent to the electric chair. She killed a man and stole his car and money, all on a plot to bust her husband out of jail. <laughs> the electric chair was new technology at the time, so the executioners didn't know what they were doing, didn't know what to expect or how to operate. All they did was cut her hair. And not long after they flipped the switch, they smelled burning hair and her cheap perfume emanating. In the courthouse where she was convicted, the, haunting, the hauntings began not too long after and continue today. Quote, electrical equipment malfunctions, doors lock, and lights dim sporadically within the courthouse, all accompanied by the familiar smell of burnt hair and cheap perfume. Oh, that's like a 4D haunting experience <laughs> like at Disney World or something. That's amazing. Uh, apparently, because the courthouse is in the same building as the county clerk's office, there is a ban on mentioning Tony Joe's name during election season. I don't understand the reason why that is, but I guess they're afraid that people will be discouraged from voting because they're afraid of being then haunted for pulling the lever for the wrong candidate or yeah. right candidate. I don't, I, know. I don't know about you, but I tend to be more respectful of people's superstitious suspicions, supernatural superstitions. People in general, yes. My wife's, no. <laughs> Fair enough. She knew no. what she was getting into yeah. when she married you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, she tells me she believes in ghosts. She's convinced there was one in her, the house she grew up in. That's just nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to reserve my opinion on yeah. that. Um, yeah. You know, people believe what you believe. That's right. As long as you're not hurting others, who cares? Yeah. So if you're thinking about gerrymandering and a new uh, candidates out there, if you're thinking about gerrymandering, just tell them the uh, voting booth is haunted and you just keep people away. <laughs> Hopefully enough of your constituents are idiots. I mean, what? <laughs> the second legal building we're going to talk about is also in Louisiana. I think Louisiana is... A lot of my research kept showing up cases or um, incidents of something haunted down in the Bayou area. And a number of the articles admitted, we seem to attract this stuff. So who knows what's going on there? Well, I think it makes sense. I saw this documentary called True Blood, I think oh, it was. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, an excellent documentary. <laughs> Where uh, it vividly depicts the hauntings of yes. Bon Tom. So. Yeah, Civil War, Civil War soldier comes back as a vampire. Yes, excellent documentary. Absolutely. So it makes sense <laughs> that all these haunted buildings would exist there. <laughs> um, so this other uh, haunted building we're going to talk about is the Louisiana Supreme Court building. It's in New Orleans, and apparently New Orleans has more haunted buildings than any other city in the country, uh, but supposedly the Supreme Court building is especially haunted. I don't know if that's like a scientific quantification that they made, <laughs> especially haunted. You have to, there's a minimum threshold of apparition numbers <laughs> yeah, that you must hit per exactly. month. Uh, I wonder where you can buy those gadgets. I'm sure they exist out there. Yeah, the Stranger Things set. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it might be because multiple people have made the same claims over decades about this building. Mm -hmm. So people claim to hear footsteps frequently when they're working there. When they go out in the hallway, there's no one else there. Um, when you attempt to trace back who these footsteps might belong to, a lot of people believe that it belongs to two witnesses who were murdered violently during a murder trial Murdered during the trial. Murdered during a murder trial, and it was all tied to the mafia. Nice. So the footsteps that you hear echoing in the hall, they believe belong to those two witnesses. Um, mm. But the, the more common um, sighting that occurs in this building, it has occurred inside and outside of the building over the last 50 to 60 years. People consistently describe this apparition in the same way, the way 
the apparition looks, the way they're dressed, the, the accessories that they have. Um, people have seen the apparition from outside looking in and from the inside. And apparently when they look at it, it immediately vanishes. So I don't know if that lends more credence to the reality of this, but... I mean, the fact that they get the details consistent. Right. You know... There's something, there's something to my that. My lawyer brain tells me <laughs> that that's a... Uh... There's something to that, although if he disappears every time, how accurate is it? And how many times have... Did they already hear it and then they saw it? And then they repeated it because they had already been, you know, that seed had been planted. Yeah, that's, you know, whatever. Um, So he's often been described as a man in his 40s who's dressed in a beige suit and is carrying a briefcase. A Bayou gentleman's uh, lawyer's uniform. Yes, apparently that makes him very clearly a lawyer. (laughs) You know, that beige suit and briefcase combo. (laughs) Um, And so doing a little research about who this man might be, turns out that there was a lawyer, a very intrepid, dogged lawyer who spent a lot of his time at the Supreme Court. Um, and he lost a major case in the 1950s and shot himself in the building as a result of losing that case. So um, that's who they believe might be this apparition. Well, if you find yourself in the Louisiana Supreme Court, be sure to look out for the beige suit guy carrying a briefcase. Yeah, and I He might not really be there. I wonder if people who work in that building refuse to wear a beige, beige suit and briefcase <laughs> because, or maybe they like to perpetuate the rumor. Oh, I would totally, I would wear a beige suit every day just <laughs> exclusively, to screw Exclusively yeah. wear a beige suit. <laughs> oh, that's good. So the next um, little segment that we want to do is spooky legal news. A lot of weird um, stories crop up in the news um, related to human practices and the occult. So um, I think you have a really fun one to talk about. I do. About. I, th- I feel like this one is probably one that for the non-legal community is most familiar. Uh, mm-hmm. People have, I, f- I feel like a fair number of people have heard of this because it's been in, maybe if not the Today Show, then something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a woman in Northern Ireland named Amanda Teague, and she married a Haitian pirate named Jack Teague, whom she claimed died 300 years ago. This is a true story. She claims the ghost visited her. She claims this ghost is the basic basis for Jack Sparrow of Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm, famous ghost. Yes. So a year after their courtship, <laughs> uh, they got married. I wonder a, what their dates were like. We don't have to go down that Very road. one-sided, I imagine. <laughs> the conversation was pretty one-sided. <laughs> uh, so a year after their first get-together, they got married in the middle of the Atlantic, and she and her ghost were married by a Celtic shaman, this shaman being legally authorized to perform marriages in Northern Ireland. Okay. The validity of this marriage I'll get to in a second. Uh, Teague said that when she and Jack married in international waters, a medium spoke for Jack to give his consent to the marriage. So, yes means yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. The officiant, this Celtic shaman, filed the paperwork uh, in Northern Ireland. Now to the validity, a registrar in Belfast said that a wedding on the Atlantic could not be given, uh, could not have been registered in Belfast because marriages there must be registered in the district where they took place. You know, I think it's pretty cool of this court to not question the validity of the marriage itself, but only mm. the jurisdiction. That's where the question came. Yeah, from. I'm, 
I appreciate them not going into the slippery slope argument. Well, yeah. I mean, if you can marry your ghost, then what are we going to allow? Absolutely. <laughs> I think the, the Irish might be a little more liberal yeah. about those types of things yeah. than we are here. Uh, Amanda, uh, as you may have guessed uh, by my earlier mention, took his last name. <laughs> Teague. Yep. Now, during their marriage, she claimed they were like any other couple with romantic getaways, arguing, and sex, which, according to Amanda, was the best she ever had. We're going to leave that alone. I wonder how her ex-boyfriends yeah, feel like, about that. <laughs> oh. How do you measure up to a guy with ghost stuff? <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to be in the business of questioning her beliefs, but I'm guessing it's the best she ever had because it was exactly what she imagined it to be. Yeah, sure. But you know what? <laughs> Good for you, Amanda. Yep. Good for you. The couple was not without their trouble and drama, though. Unfortunately, weeks after their oceanic nuptials, Amanda began to feel ill and blamed her poor health on Jack. Just weeks later. Just weeks later, unfortunately, yeah. Oh, Just man. They, they weren't meant to be. Same lifeline as a, a Hollywood marriage. I know. Lifetime, sorry. She cut ties with Jack and had a shaman perform a soul extraction, which is similar to an exorcism, but not quite. And she claims that led to his departure and her health's return. Is a soul extraction similar to a divorce? I, I don't. I mean, I, I would assume if you asked most divorce couples, they would claim to have their soul Absolutely. sucked out of them. Absolutely. Uh, you and I have incredible marriages, and that will never happen. Naturally, if you're uh, listening. <laughs> but again, her health did return. So, you know, there's some, credi- there's some credence to the idea that whatever spirit was there or she thought was there, its departure made her feel healthy again. But she stayed married to him for two more years. It was only after two more years that they ended up getting divorced. So they were legally separated. Does the soul extraction qualify as a legal separation? There's a a lot of uh, murkiness here. Yeah. As I imagine that the the legal world, uh, the legal recognition of this is about as easy to see as is Jack. Sure. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. So this next one is... Pretty fun. It involves our favorite video streaming giant and a group of Satanists. Uh, the headline read, Satanists settle lawsuit with Netflix over goat-headed statue. <laughs> Can't wait to find out what this is about. And what's funny, before you go, that's not clickbait. It's just accurate. I mean, yes, it is <laughs> the most clickbaity sounding headline that completely accurately conveys what happened they're here. Not, they're not, you know, just assembling words together to get you to read their article this this happened this happened god bless america (laughs) although that last story was ireland so god bless humanity yeah exactly um so a group of satanists that sued netflix for 50 million dollars for allegedly copying the image of its goat-headed deity has amicably settled its lawsuit with the video streaming giant Uh, The Satanic Temple organization claimed that Netflix and Warner Brothers had copied the image of Bapomet, a winged half-man, half-goat figure that has been worshipped by various occult groups all over the world for a very, very long time. Um, Apparently, they copied the image of Bapomet in its program, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Have you ever seen the show? I have. It's, I think I've got like, I think maybe I finished the first season. It was a little too teeny boppery for me. Fair enough. Um, I am personally very partial to uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the Melissa Joan Hart classic from TGIF when we were growing up. Oh, yeah. Um, So I haven't gotten into this yet, but maybe I might have to now that 
we've talked about it. <laughs> so a reproduction of Bapomet, this figure, appeared in four episodes of the show without the group's permission, the group claims. Uh, but the group's leaders said that the suit has now been settled, thank goodness, and that the unique elements of the Satanic Temple's Bapomet statue will be acknowledged in the credits of the show's episodes. So for anybody who does watch the show, look out in the credits to see if uh, the satanic group's legal um, asks have been met mm. by Netflix. I'm, I'm sure they have. <laughs> um, so the satanic temple is a group headquartered in Salem, Massachusetts. And it says its mission is to encourage benevolence and empathy among all people. Members do not worship Satan, the group says. Uh, the figure of Bapomet was associated with the 12th century Catholic military order called the Knights of Templar and has since been worshipped by cultists, including the famous Aleister Crowley. Do you know who Aleister Crowley is? No. So I, I think he's like, you know, the David Blaine of the 1850s. Oh. He's this famous occultist. Um, and I first heard his name when I saw the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Okay. An excellent. <laughs> By and Sean any Connery's standards. last, if I'm not mistaken. Is he, he dead? He has, no, he's still alive. Oh. He's, he, I think he's, if I'm not mistaken, he swore off acting until England got out of Scotland. Oh. So he's been out of movies for a while. <laughs> I'm sure he's fine somewhere, wherever you are. I think, he li- I think he lives in Jamaica. Did he even play Aleister Crowley in that movie? I don't know. I'm making stuff up. Anyway, let's <laughs> move on. So this next case is. There's no resolution yet to this, and I want to kind of pose it as an open-ended question because it's an interesting case. So there's a Florida business owner who has an employee, and the employee is a practicing witch, and this witch asks her boss for a day off to religiously observe Halloween. And so my question is, you know, how should this business owner respond? So just as a quick, uh, from a quick legal perspective, the Uh, EEOC Compliance Manual Addressing Religious Discrimination cites Title VII, which says, it shall be unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise discriminate against any individual or his compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's religion. Hmm. And it's worth noting in South Africa, witchcraft is a constitutionally protected religion. Canada has also legalized witchcraft. So... North of the border, they're cool with it. In South Africa, it's constitutionally protected. Here, I don't know, as a small, as a former small business owner, if someone came to me and said, "I want a day off to religiously observe Halloween," I can say, "Okay, I also eat a biblical amount of candy on Halloween, <laughs> but I'm not asking for the day off." Yeah, this is a really interesting question, just from like a social perspective and a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. So I know that um, the Wiccan religion, Wicca, is. I believe registered as one of the, like the recognized religions of. I don't know. I, I know in Australia, Jedi is an ex, uh, officially uh, recognized so religion. Officially recognized as a religion yeah. doesn't mean anything. Is what you're saying right now? <laughs> uh, maybe I, I, you know I don't know. <laughs> um, so I don't know what she means by practicing witch. I don't know if she means that she like is pra- actively practicing the Wiccan religion, or if she has an independent practice. Regardless, I tend to believe if adequate notice is given, mm-hmm. um, then her religious wishes should be granted. I guess the fear is that from an employer's perspective, well, if I do that, then I can have anybody in the office come to say, I want off on 
Wednesdays because Wednesdays are a regular, you know, officially Yeah, it's like when do you, when do you, how do you differentiate between a sincerely held belief and someone that's trying to slack off of work? And also you get into this very murky area of an individual's beliefs Mm -hmm. versus those that are shared by others, you know, more institutionalized beliefs. If it's an officially recognized religion that's got, uh, temples, churches, whatever you want to call them, dotted throughout the area, then it's a lot easier to say, I need off for Yom Kippur. I need off for Easter. I need off for Diwali. Power in numbers. Right. If I say my church of me and John, <laughs> it's, it's mm-hmm. going to be a lot harder uh, yeah. to p- potentially to justify that. I would say... But like your point, if it's sincerely held, yeah. it's sincerely held. And how are we to impose our frame of the world upon someone else you know like as a boss who am I to say no your beliefs are not sincere and in my Mm -hmm. world it's not realistic for Halloween to be a holiday so it can't be for you either no I think this comes down to purely a notice situation Mm -hmm. if she's given a month or two weeks notice that I need this day off and she's followed the company's procedures about requesting a day off if they come back with no you can't have that day off and then she counters with, well, it's a religious holiday for me, and that's why I want the day off. If they ask what religion, I feel like that's treading on right. a legal issue. Right. No one should you have know? people, as far as I know, I'm not familiar with any cases where someone had to justify this is what I believe. Or they disclose d- what their religion is to their workplace. Right. That would, I'm sure right. that would, I don't know for a fact, but I would strongly suspect that that's a violation. I also feel like I'd... Sh- I don't think people have to justify their beliefs, explain the tenets of their faith in yeah. any way, other than perhaps to articulate it as a as an organized set of beliefs. Yeah. But insofar as to justify it, I don't think they have to do that. Yeah, I, I think that this business owner should comply with her employee's wishes mm-hmm. as long as mm-hmm. her employee followed the protocol. <laughs> well, you heard it. If you're working for Radhika in 10 years, you can just tell her, uh, I, I just believe this. I, I should have two-hour lunches, and she'll just give it to you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> so this last chunk of little stories, cases, torts, lawsuits we're going to discuss are all um, funny and interesting lawsuits that people have actually pursued. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, just like everything we're talking about today, they are spooky or Halloween-themed. <laughs> Pretty fun ones. The first one is Fleischfresser. <laughs> Sorry, Germans. <laughs> the directors of school district. Uh, their parents sued the school district, claiming a supplemental reading series, quote, indoctrinates children in values directly opposed to their Christian beliefs by teaching tricks, despair, deceit, parental disrespect, and by denigrating Christian symbols and holidays. Parental disrespect, okay. The main characters in this reading series were wizards, sorcerers, giants, and unspecified creatures with supernatural powers. Again, this is a supplemental reading series for students in grades K through 5. Parents claimed that the books violated the First Amendment's Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses. The court dismissed in favor of the school district mainly because the purpose of the books was not to impart religion or morality, but simply reading. So I I feel like... If the books are successful in supplementing reading and that's all that they're doing, great. And even if they are teaching morals, the question is not, you know, what is the medium of those morals? It's are they good morals? Yeah. 
Yes. And so I'm pretty sure that it's using these characters uh, does get kids to read, given that J.K. Rowling was a billionaire, was because she donated $160 million to charity and is no longer a billionaire. Shiro. I'm pretty sure kids like reading about witches and wizards. And so being afraid of a text because of its subject matter is foolish and self-defeating. It, it just empowers the subject matter. Subject matter. And this is where I think perhaps the most famous wizard, maybe next to Merlin, uh, Dumbledore, offers good advice here. Call him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things. Fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Wow, I, I'm really glad that you brought up this last point. I know you're a huge Harry Potter fan. I am a huge Harry Potter fan. I, um, Speaking as a person who was 11 when Harry was 11 and 12 when Harry was 12, all the way mm. up until his seventh year, uh, it was the summer before college for me. I grew up with Harry Potter, and I can very confidently and comfortably say that I wouldn't be the social justice warrior person that I am if it was not for Harry Potter. Harry Potter taught me not only the difference between right and wrong, but that there are so many shades of gray in between. Taught me how to not only stand up to my enemies and those who are clearly committing wrongs, but also standing up to your friends who sometimes need to be told by a peer that what they're doing is not right. Harry Potter taught me how to discern media and fact check and do independent research. Harry Potter taught me that sometimes the most powerful thing that you can do is not try to advance yourself, but advance those in a, a lesser position than you. That's how you have the most power. I learned all of those things from the Harry Potter books. And I bring that up because their Harry Potter books, as they were coming out, I remember reading many um, stories about how schools in Kansas and schools in Min Mississippi, and I'm sure other places too, were actively banning the Harry Potter books and holding book burnings of these books. It's difficult for me to reconcile these books that taught me everything that I just talked about, what I believe to be good things. I think most people, I hope most people would believe those are good things how those same books can incite so much fear within someone that they're burning them. And I say this as a person with six Harry Potter tattoos, <laughs> full disclosure. I'm reminded of the uh, Fahrenheit 451 line, it was a pleasure to burn. Yeah. It's easy to do that. It's easier to shut out ideas that challenge your own. And is it is it the fear of the supernatural? Because, you know, and I'm going to tread lightly here, but most religion is based on mythology that includes supernatural components. I know the Hindu religion mm -hmm. is. I know that Greek and Roman mythology is obviously all supernatural, but even Christianity, Jesus turned water to wine and could walk on water. Those mm -hmm. are supernatural components. So what are we so afraid of here? Sure. And I think we'd also would struggle with someone who, so like I remember when I was growing up and going into religion class, I went, I grew up going to Catholic school and I remember thinking then, we were learning about Jesus coming back and the mm -hmm. second uh, coming of Christ, and I remember thinking, if he walked through the door right now, would we believe him? Yeah. Like, we would just think that this was a mentally ill person who needed professional Absolutely. help. We yeah. wouldn't think, oh, wow, we would require some kind of supernatural demonstration for us to have any kind of faith affirmed. Yes. And, you know, we would we would require that. There's just no way that someone could would just say it. So maybe, I guess we, maybe we need some supernatural in this world. I definitely I believe that magic is always going to be good for us. I just 
always have a hard time wrapping my brain around stories like this one that you just shared mm-hmm. where um, parents are so fearful of the concept of witches and wizards. Uh, and those same parents usually tend to um, pound on the Bible, which includes a lot of supernatural components. Sure. So I don't know what it is there. I think Dumbledore got it right with magic. Uh, it's one of my favorite lines. He said, words are our most inexhaustible source of magic. Beautiful. I love that line. Anyway, no more Harry Potter. That's not what you came here to listen to. I mean, I could talk about Harry Potter all day. (laughs) Come find me in the school. I will talk to you about (laughs) Harry Potter all day. Um, So this next story actually is fun. I know I promised some fun lawsuits, and then we had a serious discussion. (laughs) (laughs) We are law students, and we automatically pivot to, like, deep and consequential conversations. But, uh, like, this Halloween episode shows that there's quite a bit of levity to be found in, in the law also. And lighter fluid, as you were about to say. <laughs> um, so this next case is called Ferlito versus Johnson and Johnson. Uh, the Johnson and Johnson that we are all thinking. Um, so the plaintiff and his wife, the Ferlitos, attended a Halloween party dressed as Little Bo Peep and her sheep. The husband's sheep costume was covered in cotton balls, and he felt the need to light a cigarette dressed as Little Bo Peep's sheep. It's covered in cotton balls. Covered in cotton balls. What could go wrong? Well, Matt, funny you should ask. I don't see this uh, coming. The whole thing lit on fire. <laughs> Poof, it went up in flames while the man was wearing it. Mm, so the Ferlitos argued that Johnson & Johnson did not warn consumers that cotton is flammable. And that a warning would have prevented the incident. Uh, You can understand why the Sixth Circuit didn't buy the argument either, just like neither one of us are. I mean, maybe when I was four and I bought a new pair of Nikes, I would have pulled a little silicone packet out. Put it straight in your mouth. Well, this is going in my (laughs) mouth right now. Now, as an adult, and since this person is old enough to smoke a cigarette, and be married. Presumably you have enough intelligence to know that not everything goes in your mouth, nor that lots of things can light on fire. And, you know, I, I'm not sure, like, the specific science behind cotton clothing versus right. cotton balls. But my guess is that cotton balls, because they're so light, they have a lot of oxygen in them, which is what, mm-hmm. like, fuels fires. So if this man was covered in cotton balls head to toe... There was a lot of cotton, a lot of fibers, and a lot of oxygen involved yeah. in his It's not like, like my shirt right now that I'm wearing is cotton, but it's tightly woven. Right. If I dropped a cigarette on it, it'd probably burn through the shirt, but it wouldn't just go right up. Right, but this cotton ball uh, outfit, suit, it did go up in flames. And my last word on it is if you're a grown man dressing in a homemade sheep costume, said sheep costume is made with cotton balls and you light a cigarette while wearing it you deserve as darwinism mm-hmm. portends you deserve the consequences yeah, of those I, actions i see this as a darwin award yeah congratulations mr ferlito <laughs> you got it you win this one yeah so this next case is ff station v christopher and yoko chung ff station owned a strip mall in orlando and the defendants, the Chungs, owned a restaurant. And the defendants will not pay, the Chungs will not pay rent to FF Station for their space because they claim it has ghosts. Now, <laughs> Wait, are they continuing to occupy it? What? 
they haven't like taken all of their stuff out. They're just not paying rent okay. until the ghosts are gone. Now get this, FF Station, the um, industrial, uh, um, what am I trying to say? Commercial, the commercial landlord offered to pay for an exorcism. And the Chung said no. That was very no. generous of them. I know, I know. That Sounds like they respected people's superstitions. I know, and look what it got them, slapped in the face. Wow. And instead the defendants, the Chungs, decided to break the lease. Uh, FF station, the landlord sued for breach of contract. This is after the uh, landlord had already sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into renovating this area. And the construction workers reported seeing ghosts at night. And so the restaurant owners, the Chungs, say that you know, the, because of the construction workers seeing them, that the plaintiff, FF station, knew of these reports and did not disclose them. You know, yeah. Very similar to Stambovsky. Yeah. The attorney for the defendants, the Chungs, says, as Jehovah's Witnesses, the Chungs have deeply held beliefs regarding spirits and demons. These beliefs require him to avoid encountering or having any association with spirits or demons. But the lawyer for the property owner, the landlord, said he received emails from people who are Jehovah's Witnesses claiming that Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in ghosts. Oh, my God. The discovery on this would be so interesting. Or I know. Mind-numbing in a way. Mind-numbing, yeah. But like, old discovery is mind-numbing. So. so I wonder if the um, defendants in this case, if they saw the ghosts themselves or if they heard it from the construction workers. Seems like so. I, the owner of the strip mall, spent a lot of money renovating the entire property, not just this individual one. Okay. And then the restaurant owners, the Chungs, the defendants, put more money into doing restaurant-specific ones into this one. Okay. So they put in, if I'm not mistaken, like tens of thousands of dollars okay. as compared to the strip mall owners, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. But the construction workers were the, um, they were working on behalf, doing the work at the behest of the property owner. But they were also in communication with the restaurant owners, the Chung, saying this is when your property will be ready for you to start putting stuff Okay, in. so... And it, that was when they started learning about the ghosts. Yeah, so it seems like the Chungs themselves did not witness the ghosts, but they took it on the construction workers' words that there were right, ghosts there. Right, So there's another guy, uh, Emilio San Martin, the owner of a company called Orlando Ghost Tours, who, say, who claims these spirits belong to children who were illegitimate offspring of prostitutes and were killed on the property many years Whoa, ago. Oh, that was a plot twist I was not uh, expecting. I know. <laughs> okay. There's more. There used to be a restaurant in this location as well. And this same guy said that ghosts have been there for a century with a previous restaurant owner hearing a piano being played. Hmm. When there's no piano there. Oh. I know. I guess I need to do a little bit of research about whether Jehovah's Witnesses believe in right, ghosts or I, not. Right, and I did not, and I, I don't want to comment on their beliefs, other than the fact that it is worth noting that the attorney for the property owner said, yeah, I got just, emails from a number of people saying this is not true. It's conflicting information. Right. So, I, yeah, I have no idea and no comment on whether mm. that's true or not, but... If they sincerely, again, going back to these sincerely held yeah. beliefs, if they sincerely had issues with spirits and demons, that's one place to have a conversation, start a conversation. But if they're claiming that purely to get out of the situation, then that's a different Well, I think we can together. go back to Stambovsky on yeah. this one. If, even if they didn't hold those beliefs and weren't concerned about the potential for that in their restaurant, they would not there would be no onus on them to then, you know, hire 
and uh, a renovations expert to come and put new kitchen equipment in yeah. and also have someone perform a seance. They would just expect that if the property owner is aware of this and it's a serious problem, that it would be reported mm -hmm. and disclosed. So I hope this case does not come before the Stambovsky judge, or I think I know how this is going to come <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, we know, we know where he's going to settle on it. I don't know. It's very interesting. That, that one's a little more technical, too. Mm -hmm. mm. So this one is probably one of my favorite elicit a belly laugh type of lawsuits <laughs> that makes you really appreciate and roll your eyes at the American experience. <laughs> um, so this uh, this little case took place in a neighborhood um, on a street with 20 to 30 homes, like a very typical suburban neighborhood. Um, this family, it's the, the case is called Pertel versus Mason. And um, the Pertels were a couple who had a 38-foot RV motorhome in their driveway. Um, I don't know that it was forbidden by the Homeowners, Homeowners Association. Or if there even was one. Or if there was yeah. one, right. But it was quite the eyesore, which, you know, we can imagine a 38-foot RV, RV we have to look at every day. It's an eyesore. But it was parked in their own driveway, not even on the street. So neighbors repeatedly protested this RV, and the couple got really fed up with the pro protestations. Um, and so they decided to retaliate uh, by erecting tombstones in their front yard around Halloween time. We've all seen those cute little graveyards in, mm -hmm. the, in the front yards of our neighbors. Um, this one was special, though. It was unique because each prop included a neighbor's name and their address as the date of death, plus a cute little limerick specifically naming oh, poem, each poem. neighbor. Oh, yes, poem. <laughs> sorry. A cute little poem about each neighbor. Uh, I actually Googled this and found an example of one of the tombstones. This is straight from the Pertel's yard, y'all. Betty wasn't ready, but here she lies. Ever since that night she died. Twelve feet deep in this trench. Still wasn't deep enough for that wench's stench. <laughs> 1960. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, the neighbors were quite offended by these tombstones. I mean, he went through and targeted each neighbor that had complained about their RV. <coughs> I know. Yes. Um, the neighbors complained to the police, who then came to the neighborhood to broker some peace between <laughs> the residents of this community. Um, and the police decided to remove the tombstones from the property. I mean... You know, it seemed like a fairly simple solution. Your neighbors are really offended by these tombstones. Remove them. The Patels at the time did not, like, stop them from removing them or protest it. But then they came back later and sued the police officer on First Amendment grounds. Yeah, and they came onto your property and took stuff and silenced their speech. You think the Supreme Court would grant cert to this one? I think if Scalia were alive, he might just to have fun with it. But yeah. probably not. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I understand these these neighbors were being loosely insulted. I mean, personally, I find it quite humorous. Oh, I, I would find it really funny. But I have thick skin and yeah, well, <laughs> don't really care what my neighbors think. I think it's hilarious. I'd be like, thanks for the shout out. Yeah. Wench's stench. Clever. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. 
Uh, but yeah, the neighbors. No, it seems like no one was cool in this neighborhood. Yeah, they seem. This seems a bit frigid. Yeah, and uh, but I I gotta commend the Pertels for their sense of humor. It was. Yeah. I mean, I can't say I blame the neighbors completely. I mean, seeing a gigantic motorhome. You know, we don't we don't know. Do we know what kind of neighborhood this is? Is this like super upscale or average? Let's say. You know, I don't know what type of neighborhood. Middle class seems safe, mm-hmm. but it seems like it's full of really uptight people. But I mean, look, if I'm paying my mortgage every month and I'm spending the money on that and I'm trying to keep my neighborhood nice and I'm also coming home every day after a hard day's work and seeing a gigantic motorhome. That could that, that that could bother me after a while, or seeing a bright orange house. But at the same time, how's it's your affecting property. your life? You know, that's that's what I've got this to say what, to the neighbors. Well, I, I bought. I think the idea is that your person buys a house because you like not just the house, but the neighborhood as sure. well. You know, you would could, because conversely, you would never buy a house in a terrible neighborhood, sure. even if you love the house. Yeah. So sure. you, it's part of a package deal, and then mm-hmm. this is hurting that feeling that you're getting every day when you come home to what you believe is your nice quiet quaint neighborhood yeah well maybe that wench should contain her stench <laughs> me think the lady doth stink too much <laughs> you know if you find my rv offensive i find your stench <laughs> offensive so this next case it's this is a case from about a hundred years ago and this was i'll preface this by saying this was routine at the time but it's going to sound a little strange today. So a guy in Tennessee bought a coffin to bury a family member. He did not have enough money, so he bought the coffin on credit. Unfortunately, he could not repay for the expenses of the coffin. When the undertaker came to collect, he did not have enough money. Pray tell, what are his solutions? Well, the undertaker sued to recover, and the judge said, what are you going to do? Dig up a used coffin and reuse the coffin and <laughs> just dump the dead <laughs> body out somewhere? Petty Betty. <laughs> now, as again, I said it was 100 years ago. This was a $16 coffin. And obviously Ooh. $16 doesn't sound like much to us. And 100 years ago, it still wasn't that much money. But for something like this, that was too great of an expense. So apparently it was very common mm-hmm. to purchase a coffin on credit at this time, or at least in Tennessee. I'm guessing that this was a small town where everybody knows everybody. And so the idea that you were to default on this would really damage your reputation. You wouldn't do it. So from the undertaker's perspective, it's a safe bet. Sure, I'll I'll do this because yeah. if you default on this, I mean, what kind of low life defaults on paying <laughs> <laughs> family members' coffin expenses? <laughs> but I, again, if there's the, you know, person could have fallen on hard times and just couldn't do it or just said, to hell with it no yeah that sucks <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think this is a case of like know which battles you want to fight and pursue right. uh, i'm sure the judge had a good time in court that day yeah that's funny can you <laughs> what are you gonna do dig up a coffin i love it <laughs> the final case is very similar to the Pertel v. Mason case. It's another American is apple pie and really just spe- uh, reaches that special cockle of your heart for America. <laughs> well, I, I just see the buzzwords are NASCAR and Indianapolis Colts and yeah. couch. It gets better. And tombstone. So yeah. please clarify what all this is about. So a man died in a car accident. And this man loved him 
some NASCAR and the Colts, and he loved watching NASCAR and the Indianapolis Colts from the comfort of his couch. As one does. As one does. And his wife, loving wife, and he di- I should say he died a little young. His, oh, his okay. parents were still alive, so I think he was middle-aged. Okay. Um, and his loving wife spent almost $10,000 on a custom tombstone. This tombstone was in the shape of a couch and featured the colors of NASCAR and the Colts. Naturally. <laughs> Again, as, you sa- as one does. Oh. He sought to be buried in the Catholic Church where he had already had a plot. The Catholic Church that ran the cemetery refused to erect the tombstone. The church said the tombstone was too secular for the century-old graveyard. Hmm. And the wife sued to force the church to erect the tombstone. Now, I don't know the outcome of this case, but it, is, it really divided the community. Some parishioners just left this church altogether and went to neighboring parishes. This case, wow. So I wonder if the parishioners that left, left because they were pro-NASCAR Colts couch tombstone or anti-NASCAR couch Colts tombstone. Well, it did, so it didn't, as far as I know, it did not get put up. And the priest in charge said he's okay with this. And he, he says, quote, Our culture breaks all the rules to make people feel good. Faithful Christians know rules and regulations are set up so there can be good for everyone. So I don't know if these parishioners, I feel like if the parishioners agreed with that, they would stick around and they'd be, you know, go continue going to this church and uh, seeing so this priest. So you think it was out of protest because this— I think they thought— I think the, the question is whether they were super big NASCAR and Colts fans and ah, said, fair enough, yes. I'm going to a place where my Jesus likes me as NASCAR and Colts, or they're going <laughs> because it's an intrusion on you know, First Amendment and property rights. I like, I like that the priest basically just said, we're not allowed to have fun. You guys are trying to have too much fun with this whole death <laughs> thing, so get. I guess you could say a per, a perhaps maybe from this priest's perspective, a balance would be like a New Orleans style. Catholic burial, where it's party on the way to the cemetery, sure. but then the tombstone is very yes. genteel and respectful. I mean, I don't know if I, my wife and I want to be cremated, but if we were buried, and, and let's say my wife goes before me, if I were visiting her at her gravesite and I saw a concrete couch in the colors of NASCAR and the Indianapolis they're Colts, they're giving you a place to sit, man. Be <laughs> grateful. I don't understand what the issue is. So not only does the this this church now dictate how you're living, but also how you're trying to rest in peace. I but mean, I understand it's the Pertel Mason thing, the eyesore. You paid for this plot of land. Well, let's get into that a bit. You right. do pay for the plot, right? Right. I, so I I don't know how that works because you pay for the plot, and you're not. It's not like you're leasing it. You. Because yeah, you, you don't, own it. Corpses don't pay rent to the you know the Correct. cemetery owner every month, so you own it. But do you like? Do you own the surface? Do you own the air rights? Or or do you do you own? Um, what are they called? What are ground rights? Like below ground. Sub, the subrogation rights. I don't know, Professor Paradise. Yeah. I know you told me this. I just can't remember it. Right. Well, it's it's like if you own a house and sure. you sell the mineral rights. Correct. And you get subrogation insurance in case your house collapses into the ground. That sounds right. But yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Because they never, no one ever says what you, as far as I know, maybe barring like curse words or something, you can write what you want to write on your tombstone. Yeah. And also, isn't this like a First Amendment issue? Right. Right. You should be able to write what you want to write. I don't know. 
We've already our, established our, our that tombstone I'm, speech. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a pretty like lax as far as letting people live. They want to live. We already established that. So if I was a priest in my church, you guys can be as creative as you want with your <laughs> tombstones. I personally want to be turned into a tree after I die. Oh, one of those planters where yeah. you're like, yeah, yeah, I know those. Those things are amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, throw a couple of garden gnomes under there, throw a concrete couch under there. I don't care. Garden gnomes are great. I'm like my dad. I've never <laughs> met a garden gnome I don't like. Really? I did yeah. not know this about you. You're yeah. a garden gnome guy, huh? They're adorable. Can't argue with that. Yeah, so I really enjoyed reading those. I always enjoy a little lighthearted legal issue because we deal with so much heavy stuff on a daily basis. Halloween is one of my all-time favorite Holidays. Me too. I got married on Halloween. I know. I was going to say you should tell them about your wedding. Yeah, my wife and I got married on our, our Hallow wedding. We had the first oh. half of the epi- uh, episode. <laughs> this is an episode. <laughs> Hallow-sode. The first half of our wedding was, you know, suit and tie and white wedding dress. But then the second half, we got married at a rowing club where I was a, a member. And But the locker room was, mm-hmm. was perfect. So everybody brought costumes. And halfway through, I said, okay, costume change time. And everybody goes and changes Amazing. into their costumes and comes back out. We did. Um, we hired makeup artists. So we did Dia de los Muertos. Cool. And so we had half of our faces painted. And it was wow. a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So Halloween is a special day um, just because it's fun. And it reminds you to be a kid sometimes. But also, it can be very romantic. It so can. I, it can. I appreciate you sharing that story. And yeah. I really uh, i am glad that we got to sit down and talk about these. Cause oh, yeah. Really fun, actually. So we hope you've had a a spooky day today, that this has given you some, particularly for you law students out there, that this has hopefully brought some levity into your life and given you some spooky fix before you binge on candy. There you go, guys. And be safe out there. Fun and safe Halloween. Make sure that you are discerning which candy is candy and which one are edibles. I'm not telling you not to eat the edibles. Just be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, y'all. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.